Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Andy Hines. Dr. Hines is Assistant Professor and Program Coordinator for the University of Houston's Graduate Program in Foresight. And he also consults through his firm, Hindsight. In Andy's 25 years experience of professional futurist work covers a decade working for companies such as the Kellogg Company and Dow Chemical, and then consulting with Coates and Jarrett and then Social Technologies Innovaro. Andy's also written quite a few books, including Thinking About the Future, Teaching About the Future, Consumer Shift, How Changing Values Are Reshaping the Consumer Landscape, 2025 Science and Technology Reshaping US and Global Society. And Andy's PhD dissertation was in the role of an organisational futurist in integrating foresight into organisations. Welcome to FuturePod, Andy. Thanks for having me, Peter. Question one, Andy, is the one where I encourage the guests to tell their story about how they became part of the Future and Foresight community. So what's the Andy Hines story? Well, I think it's very similar to almost everyone that I encounter. One day we stumble upon the future and, and realize, aha, we've got it. <laughs> we found it. This is it. I've been looking for it. So as a restless undergraduate, uh, I, I stumbled into a course called History of the Future, and I was hooked almost immediately. So I went down to the uh, Houston program, which back then was at the Clear Lake campus, got the master's degree. And, you know, at that point in time, I was doing it because it was fun. Yeah. And, you know, as I was about to graduate, I thought, well, you know, I probably should think about like what I'm going to do for a living <laughs> and did some, you know, exploring around in, uh, I really liked the work that Joe Coates was doing. So I was fortunate to get an internship with him up in uh, DC and ended up spending about seven years working for Joe. And, and boy, he, he sure taught me a lot. He was a tough taskmaster, but if you could kind of stand the heat, you would learn a lot. And he was always, always willing to help. Um, so that, that was just a perfect start for a, a career. Really, since then, I've kind of jumped around a little bit. One thing uh, you, you mentioned in the, the bio that I was uh, inside a couple of corporations. One of the frustrating things about being a consultant early on is we, we get this uh, sense from our clients, great stuff, good, you know, we, we really love it, but we don't know what to do with yeah. it. And, uh, you know, I heard, you heard that enough. It's like, all right, what's going on in there? And uh, so I went inside to kind of see what, what is it like? Um, how can you promote futures within an organization? And um, I understood. I learned a lot. It was, it is, and re it still remains a difficult uh, thing to do to get really any kind of change. I mean, the change about the future is, 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 all, is maybe a, a little bit of a special case. But, you know, any kind of change uh, in an organizational format is going to cause consternation, right? Yeah. So uh, it was really fun to kind of be inside and kind of put, be on the other side of it and, and really, you know, kind of try think about how what is the right kind of positioning and work that the futures can do inside. 
as you say, I ended up putting it into my uh, my dissertation. So I've thought a lot about that, and that's that's sort of an ongoing theme. And really, the uh, the ultimate plan always was to get back to Houston at some point. I, I had such a great experience there as a student. I always wanted to kind of make that the the last leg of the journey. And uh, fortunately enough, the timing uh, worked out where it was uh, Peter Bishop was finally ready to to move on. And um, so we planned, we did succession planning, we did futures planning, you know, I mean, imagine that. And uh, it actually was really uh, quite a seamless transition. And I'm uh, grateful to Peter for that. And so I've been there about five years now and um, having some fun and, you know, dealing with the bureaucracy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to let you get away with, I mean, obviously, I'm actually hoping that you will explain a bit about your wisdom from both your organizational experience and your dissertation because of course a lot of people that are trying to practice futures and foresight are inside organizations and are finding it difficult the way that you found it difficult and I am hoping that we'll get a chance to at least talk about what your lessons are from that experience. Yeah sure we definitely give off the top of my head, I mean, a couple of the, the highlights is one, and I think this is a tough one for some futures, is you really have to be a political animal. Yeah. And, you know, I think we don't like that. We find that that is rather distasteful, right? Yeah. We should be above the, but that, you know, is for someone on the inside, that's essential, kind of an essential uh, characteristic. And uh, really being willing to mix it up and, you know, get involved and, and know what's, you know, know what's going on. Because that's the unique uh, advantage that an insider has compared to an external consultant is you can really, really get a feel for that, the culture and what people are talking about and, you know, what's going on at the the old water cooler, so to speak. And so I think that that's a, a valuable piece. And, and, and I guess the other is maybe, maybe more than any other kind of position is patience, right? That one of the advantages you have as an internal futurist is you can play a long game. You're not, you know, as a consultant, you're into that sort of, you've got to make the, you know, the three month project has to land or else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but as an insider, you can kind of, you can literally, you know, and it, we, we, when I work with um, people that are setting up functions now, we set, we do our own plan. Imagine that. Like, what's the vision? What's the plan? What are the initiatives? And so I, I've found that you can really, you know, apply our own cooking to how you think about that position. I mean, you still need to be, I think, opportunistic and, you know, kind of see where the opportunities lie. Um, but I, the other thing that I've found, I think, that really maybe might surprise some people is that there is a lot, there is a hunger for this stuff. Yeah. And even in an organization that seems like just so, I don't know, so dinosaur-like, if whatever that word is, uh, are so conserved, but they're, they're there. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you can do that sort of initial championing work of getting out there and kind of letting people know that you exist, uh, they'll come. Yeah. They'll, they'll come around, right? Yeah. Um, I guess one other thing, just to, and it kind of relates to that, is the uh, the real importance of being, especially in the early going, about choosing your projects wisely, and um, you know, kind of establishing credibility with some early wins. And I think the temptation there is to kind of shoot for the moon right off the bat. And I think one of the things we've learned is, you know, to really, you know, again, play the long game. Pick your battles, uh, you know, make, get those small successes and build, you know, you, the, the word of mouth credibility, I think is, is just fundamental to that, to that role. 
Yeah, I certainly remember you talking about permission foresight um, <laughs> and the notion of just, you know, just just do it slowly, build credibility and work with people. Yeah, I mean, we, we've just learned that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's all very, I think earlier in my career, I took it personal when people didn't want to do foresight, like I had done something wrong, was something wrong with me. And I just realized that, look, if you're asking people to do something different, they'd rather not. So you, you've asked something, you've got to, you've got to deliver on that ask. And uh, I think being really sensitive to that and, and to not wasting people's time, right? And, you know, just being very, recognizing that people are busy and, and just being very, um, I guess, thoughtful and strategic about, you know, where, where can we really make an impact? And, um, and then again, that, I think that uh, can, can kind of ladder up into the, as we used in the permission thing. If I do this well, will you let me do the next thing? You let me do the next thing. And, um, you know, it works. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think for me, one of the one of the toughies is that because we are focused on the future and we tend to focus on the big questions, we can see people in organisations, our organisations, as kind of being short term focused and almost um, well, I don't know what the word would be, but kind of the fact that you know here we are focused on the important questions and they're not that somehow that you know the people in the organisation aren't as smart as us or or aren't as uh, caring as us and and that obviously doesn't work in organisations because because <laughs> of course nobody goes into work to do a bad job everybody goes in and in their own way they're trying to create the best future they can for themselves and their organisation as a practitioner inside an organisation you have you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I absolutely say, I think we've done uh, a lot more work in recent years about I, whether you want to call it backcasting, pathways, whatever this, this, how, how does the, how, how do we more tightly link the, the present and the future? And really, because we've got to demonstrate what that journey looks like. And it's not enough just to say, here's the compelling, you know, vision at the end of it. But, you know, what do I do and how do I start? Yeah. And I think we've gotten a bit, I think we've gotten to, we're doing a better job now of, you know, after a project, really like, all right, here's, you know, here's things, tangible things we can do and start to build some momentum, right? And um, we thought a lot about that sort of momentum building and, um, I guess that's that's another thing that, that that can really help the future come. Like for instance, we start we've done some work um, looking at the future, you know, sustainable this and that. And what's been really exciting is this circular economy idea has really kind of caught on, you know, grabbed some attention. And you know, we were able to sort of link some of the some of the work we were doing in a you know in in other aspects of sustainability, and the client was pulling us towards a circular, yeah. which is wonderful, right? I mean, so in a sense, you, while I would say my own personal practice and, and probably the, the bias if you said is more towards a, a client-centered approach. I mean, we don't present a normative view of the future. We, we basically say, you discover what your future is. I think we, we, we're making sure that those big issues, those big questions, uh, we're doing all we can to get them into the conversation um, and then just, you know, we'll hope that that hope that we can make that case compelling enough that they can see the road to it, that it becomes something that, that they ultimately end up choosing. Yeah, sure.
question two, Andy, is the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a, a method or framework that is central to their practice, to what they do. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Sure. So in, in Houston, um, Peter Bishop started, he developed, started developing this process called, he originally called it framework forecasting. And it was basically a way to teach, the, teach students how to uh, you know, do a futures project. What we learned is we had so many different tools, but there wasn't kind of a um, kind of a an overall overarching integrating framework. It just for students, it just seemed like a bunch of different things, and it was hard for them to put it all together. And so what he he did, and, and uh, what he did, and then when I came uh, when I came to the university, we, we started working on together is could we find a kind of a common ground in, in terms of when futurists do their work, what are the common things that we all do? So we, we did the, the research and, the, and, and talked to the, you know, hundreds of people and put it all together into the thinking about the future book. But basically we said there's six things that, you know, we might call them something different. We may do five instead of six. We may do yeah. seven, in, you know, but we're doing, we're doing, we're framing the problem, we're scanning, we're forecasting or futuring is, the, is the, the current word. We're visioning, we're planning and designing, and then we're acting or, you know, so, yeah. but, and now, and then that, that sort of framework, you can then take all the different wonderful variety of techniques that we have and kind of see how it maps onto that sort of core framework. And I think that that has been just a super helpful way to teach because there's a there's a nice so we'll teach them the like the really basic uh, you know 101 what's the minimum if you will you need to do to kind of run through a project so they understand the basics you know and have it you know template one flows to template two to three to four and it's you know it's a little it almost seems a little forced but it actually works right the process flow and the logic of that you know that teaching thing that we're like okay this really helps us teach it and what we we've also been doing is uh, we've been doing a lot of research projects with real clients right so we're actually out, you know kind of doing project work and then we're we're kind of now we're backfilling what we learn in the field with what we're teaching in the, you know, in the, in the classroom, so to speak. And I think we've got a nice, now we've got a nice kind of uh, iteration back and forth between, you know, I don't know, sometimes we're, we're innovating first in the classroom and then we'll go try it in the project. And other times we'll try something on the project and then bring it back to the classroom. Yeah. So I think I feel really, really good. And I, and I'm, I'm, one thing I just want all the listeners to know, and I want you to call me if you hear this, if we ever say the framework is the right way to do things, uh, <laughs> there's, there's going to be some uh, hell to pay because it's, it's not right. There's just, there's so many wonderful ways to do it. There isn't a right way. We teach a way because it's easier to get your head around it. But yeah. by all means, we want, students to you know to take advantage of all the diverse ways of uh, doing this kind of work yeah that's interesting because in my interview with Sahail and his five pillars process one of where Sahail's practice is now is that he understands the five pillars not so much as a step one step two step three but you start somewhere in the five right you start at the most pregnant the most opportune place for where the client or organization is and from that you then almost retrofit the other elements as necessary but it's about finding where the juice is finding where the energy is finding where the the most the most logical place to start and then using that kind of overall framework in a more uh, bespoke way 
to really give the best possible outcome. Well, good. I, I think then we're doing justice to how we uh, speak about uh, the pillars because that was our sense of it. It's like, boy, this is a really awesome set of tools, but it's not, um, it's not a process flow. And, you know, we're like, it, it makes total sense. And it's so, you know, being such an expert and so immersed in all these elements of the, uh, all, the all the pillars, he know, he just intuitively knows when to do this and that, which, you know, to, to train somebody who's, you know, kind of fresh off the boat, so to speak, and new to, you know, that, that's a hard thing to do, right? That's, yeah. that's really advanced. That's advanced practitioner stuff. And so like in the, that's what we like about the framework is you can kind of take anybody and you kind of run them through that and that at least gets them started. And we always say, as you're learning this stuff, be, be building your own approach. Like yeah. what you, what speaks to you, what combination works for you. And, and like, so that you can kind of, I say, aspire towards that kind of master practitioner, like someone like Sohail that can just look at a situation and immediately know what to do. I mean, that's, 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 a, that's high art right there. Sure. Well, again, I'm going to, I mean, you're a master practitioner too, so I'm going to, I'm going to put it on you that, again, sticking with the Houston framework, can you actually talk through maybe just an example without necessarily identifying anybody about where you started at the end and work backwards? So you, actually, so you actually start with the action or you start with the innovation and then sort of, you know, apply the other elements to it. I would say not, actually. Um, one of the, and maybe it's, maybe it's because I, we always have students on the projects that I, yeah. I do tend to start at the beginning. I mean, uh, I think in the consulting space, we might have played around a little bit more like, like you're saying with Sohail, but I think... Working with students, I you know I try to make it as as real as possible. So, yeah. um, you know, we'll tell them when we're making uh, <laughs> when we're we're deviating, and we try to have fun, right? Like, all right, in this project, let's try. You know, uh, like I remember the first time we used the futures triangle in a project, maybe it was about three or four years ago, and um, it was funny. The uh, client had been complaining, like. Not not in a bad way, but just saying, I we don't really these drivers. They seem to be all different. And one of the students, it wasn't me, it was one of the students who goes, you know, if we sorted those into the futures triangle, I think that that might get at what the, and it, boom, yeah, perfect, wonderful. And, you know, I think that, you know, that, that's the kind of the awesomeness of, again, of, of having the, the academic and the, uh, the practice together. Mm -hmm. um, that you can, you know, you can have those kinds of moments where we, you know, we're stuck and, you know, we go through and what, what can we, you know, how, what, we're at an impasse. What are some ways that we might get through this? Yeah, and again, for me, what I'm hearing there, Andy, is it's it's the framework, not itself, but it's in conjunction to where the client is, where the person is. It's not yeah. the framework or the tool actually necessarily produces the magic. It's the ability to say what helps this client at this moment. Right, and I think another thing that's probably a little bit uh, – a little bit peculiar to the types of work we're doing is for various reasons, we're very often working with first time clients. Yep. So whereas in the advanced, you know, when you're consulting and you have repeat clients, you're always, you're, you're always trying to kind of, you know, take it to the next level. So you can kind of do a little bit more fooling around when you have a repeat client, but when you're dealing with 
uh, always mostly dealing with new clients. It, it, there's, you know, there's a different kind of dynamic at play. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's actually something we're trying to do. I mean, we said we want to introduce the future to as many people and organizations as we can. So, you know, we get a lot of first timers and, and there you, in, to some degree there, you, we have to have enough, <laughs> enough consistency and process yeah. that they don't freak out. Sure. I mean, we, We've had some really good luck. I mean, I really, uh, we've been using the three, like uh, the three horizons framework and client, when we do our scanning, we're, you know, tagging it to the three horizons. We're finding clients really get that. Yeah. I mean, that's been a huge help to us. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you know, the different scenario techniques, we've been playing around with the version of uh, Jim's archetypes. We've had really good luck with that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, is it, one of the other things we've uh, been using recently is um, we got uh, Joel Barker's implications wheel, Yep. which really nice, you know, so uh, we, we keep and we keep kind of, uh, you know, trying these new tools, seeing which ones, uh, which ones land and which ones don't. But to your point, a lot of times it's like the key insight doesn't necessarily come at the end of the process, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's in the scanning, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if if a client hasn't been looking at what's going on and, and they start scanning, it's like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> wow, <laughs> we had no idea, right? I mean, there's, you know, sometimes a really well done scanning library will, will you know, will, will be enough to have really delivered some some real value. So I, I think it, it does come at different points, not always at the end. But again, I, I would say we are pretty consistent in trying to do, trying to teach them as we go by being consistent in process well. Yeah, um, I did a recent interview with Zia Sada, and one of Zia's, as you know, Zia likes to give warnings to the field. Zia was saying one of his concerns about futures people is that they, is that they tend to become besotted with particular methods, and mm. almost carry the method as an ideology rather than. Forget, forget your favorite tools and look at the best tools to meet the need of the person in front of you. Yeah, that's, you know, as you know, as uh, being in the academic space, one of the things you're always a little bit afraid of is, you know, are we, are we up to date? Are we, you know, is there some new development that we're missing that we, uh, that we need to be looking at? And, you know, one of the ways that we've been playing around with that is we, we have the opportunity to do a summer elective and it, each year we take a different topic that we are saying we should probably be doing more about X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, this year it's uh, sci-fi futures, you know, the sci-fi prototyping design fiction tools. We're going to look at that. We did the uh, analytics, the data predictive analytics last year. Uh, way back, one of the first ones was on design futures. So we, we try to, you know, we try to make sure that we're always, you know, kind of on top of, or at least aware of, you know, we're, what's, what's the new stuff happening, right? Yeah. But, you know, to some degree, I think, I think it's fair enough to say that, you know, maybe the, the university shouldn't be at the bleeding edge uh, that in a sense that we're kind of pulling together what's, you know, kind of the, you know, Kind of the, the practitioners are really out there and pushing the envelope, and then you know we kind of take the best off. Yeah, I don't know if that's how you guys thought about it. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I'm always aware. I mean, as I said, as a consultant, you have your favorite tools that always work, and you tend to go to the favorite tools that always work. Um, I think Zia's point, which I think is a good one, is that there is no tool that is ideology free. All all tools have their own embedded ideology. Yeah, indeed. It's about understanding the ideological 
structure of the tool you're using and then saying, yeah, a certain, yeah, certain types of tools don't but basically project the future. And that, of course, is, is, is Zia's uh, anathema that, you know, we should yeah. not be in the business of projecting the present into the future. Even though we may want to or the client may want to, Zia's got very, very forthright views that that's not our job. Right. Yeah, and I, again, I think kind of the nature of our beast in that uh, when you're introducing people to the future, I think we we kind of want to work them in slowly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we, you know, if we got into sort of post-normal and, you know, all that uh, uh, anticipation and all that stuff, I'm your heads would explode. So, <laughs> you know, we got to bring them along, bring them along, push them, let them develop and get that, get to that part of the journey. Thanks, Andy. Question three is the one where I talk to Andy Hines, citizen, human being, about the emerging futures and how Andy himself is sense-making what's around us, what's around him, and just really encouraging you to, you know, to kind of you know, set your own context, set your own time frame, but to basically say how you are sense-making and understanding the emerging futures around you and, of course, what you want to do about them. All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, I remember a point in time when I felt like I had, as a young emerging futurist, doing a lot of scanning kind of a support work. I felt like I knew the future. <laughs> I was there. I was on the front lines. And, you know, now that I'm, you know, uh, half bureaucrat, half futurist, uh, you know, doing all the, the fun things of running, a, of uh, administering a program. I'm not on the front lines anymore. So to some degree, I really rely heavily on uh, not just students, but the community to kind of keep people aware of what's going on. And that's, I, I would just say, sort of general literacy there. I mean, and I'm still doing project work, so I keep uh, some, uh, some flow of what's happening. I think uh, what really the way I've tried to handle that is, again, recognizing that I'm not going to go back to the, the, the way things used to be, but all right, so what can you do in this situation? I try to pick one project area that I, that I really, you know, that, that, that I'm really excited about. That, that's my fun time. And uh, for years, it was the values stuff. And uh, I finally wrote that consumer shift book, and I kind of finished that piece off. And then um, since then, uh, what's really been fun for me is the, this, the idea of exploring uh, visions of Afro-capitalism. And you know, I've been working, uh, researching that for, I guess, researching is maybe a strong word. I've been looking at it for the last four or five years, and I probably got about a half of a, half of a book done. In, in the quest to, uh, I think that's such a big question, because it's not, it's not just economics, it's politics, it's yeah. technology, it's yeah. the whole kit and caboodle. So in a, to some degree, it's looking at everything, even though it's, it's framed as uh, after capitalism. And what's been so interesting and exciting about that is how many people are fired up yeah. about it. So there, it's not just what I'm seeing. Like I've got a whole bunch, a network of current and former students who are scanning for it just because they think it's interesting. And, you know, and hearing about like who, you know, what podcasts are they listening to and, and you know, what blogs are they looking at? So it's really expanded, you know, my, I guess, my field of vision in that particular topic area. So I think that having that fun thing, because I, I can't, I love to do that, right? And that, that really kind of keeps it fresh. 
I, I think one more, one other area that I thought about was um, a couple of years ago, and again, this is one of those uh, areas of uh, practice that I thought we, we needed work on. We, we were talking about, you know, in scanning, we talked about the fringe, yep. right? We find the fringe, right? And it's like, well, you know, how do you actually, how do we actually really do that? And, you know, it turns out that there's a lot of, as uh, Peter Bishop used to say, a lot of hand-waving, but not a lot of actual useful practical advice. It's really like, in, you know, we look, it's like, yeah, it, 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 there's, you know, in terms of mainstream sources, yeah, we, there's a lot of good, you know, step one, step two. But in terms of how do you find the fringe, right? So we had a we had a spring meeting on it a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, re just basically asked everybody, you know, we kind of looked at the question from a whole bunch of different dimensions. How do you do it? What people do you look? And what are your sources? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of really just kind of downloaded what we thought we you know, were doing. And, you know, since then we've been trying to, I don't know, codify is a strong word, but trying to put a little more structure or a little more guidance around that. And I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, one, two, three, four, five. But I think one of the things, one of the most important insights so far is like it, it takes time. And one of the reasons it's so hard to find fringe hits in a three-month project is you're you really have to be immersed in the space to know <laughs> you're not going to get to the fringe on day one, right? In a sense, you know, in a sense, I felt we felt a little bit in, uh, validated in that we're like, wow, this is really hard to do. And you know, I think the insight for me first popped when I was doing the after capitalism stuff, and I realized, you know, after a few years, I was starting to get to some wacky stuff. But it was a couple of years. If I was trying to deliver the fringe in you know three month and a three month yeah. client project, it's really yeah. really hard. But if you can develop that deep subject matter knowledge, all of a sudden you start to <laughs> you get there, and then it's like it's just this whole other world opens yeah. up. So I think that's been uh, that's been that's been refreshing as well. I mean, working in any area where you really want to get to what's outside, then you there's as much to do with both the culture of how you are inquiring, the the range of people that you are working with and the quality of the discourse and, and conversations you're having that actually are far more important than anything you're actually finding. You almost need to establish the basics of how you sense make the world and communicate difference to one another. Otherwise, you're going to miss it each time because people are going to self-censor. So one of the things that's really helped uh, Peter in terms of uh, you know as you say really it's a lot about the process of how you find the fringe like how, who you're talking to where they're coming from the nice things that's happened in, in our um, our graduate program is we've, we've pretty much gone all virtual uh, where we used to mix face to face and virtual we found that people just stopped coming to the classroom because they didn't want to fight traffic <laughs> they didn't want to try to find a part <laughs> so basically I said all right let's just, let's just do the whole thing virtual so we still have class it, it has also enabled us, uh, folks from anywhere in the world, to you know take the whole program from wherever they are. Um, that has really changed the, the the demographics of the program. We only had uh, six students um, last semester out of 36 that were local Houston folks. So out of that, you know, out of the 30 students that uh, were outside uh, that the local area, probably a third of them were uh, from various countries around the world. Um, you know, we've had, of course, some students from the Gulf region, as we all know, that that place has been going crazy for the future. Uh, yep. Certainly Australia, other parts of Asia, 
uh, Latin America. So basically all over the place. And that really has injected some nice, you know, uh, thought, thought and practice diversity into the kind of work we're doing. And, you know, it, it helps, it's also helped us, you know, really think about that. What is the fringe, right? Because I mean, there's that's obviously a little bit of a a loaded term itself, right? You're you're assuming there is a mainstream and a fringe, but that, <laughs> those are both pretty elusive concepts. So, good, Andy. That's good. Thank you. Question four, Andy. The one of how do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do. Yes. Well, we think a lot about that. Uh, we teach a lot about that. So I suppose I should have that well down. I have a, what I call, I have like a three to four level uh, version of the answer. And uh, the simplest one is historians study the future. Uh, sorry, historians study the past, futurists study the future. <laughs> yep. Maybe even as simple or slightly more complex, depending on your point of view, is study change. And you know, if it if the future didn't change, we wouldn't need futurists, right? We just uh, we just find out what's happening and extrapolate forward. So, um, really, the study of the future is fundamentally about the study of change. And then you know, the the third version would be something along the lines of futurists help clients, organizations, audiences, human beings anticipate and prepare for the plausible futures ahead. And we speak in terms of futures because we believe that there is not a single path to the future. There are uh, multiple pathways. And we believe that we can in, we can map the plausible pathways. And it's not an infinite number. And you don't need an infinite, an infinite number of futures to get useful map to that future and ultimately and um, perhaps most important of all that that exploration of the future has to link back to the present and what do we do today to if you will work towards the, the future we prefer and avoid the futures that we don't so it we yep. really try to tie it to it's got to come back to what do we do at some point mm -hmm. And even if it's study, <laughs> even if it, even if all we're going to do is start, I mean, but it's something. Right. Uh, we've become really, you know, really almost maniacal about that. That if if we if we've done a project client, and you know, there's not something for them to do, then they won't do anything. That's that. Yeah. And it's another one on the shelf, and you know, we've wasted three months of our lives. I'm hearing a change for you in the sense that once upon it was about why a person would be interested in the future, both in terms of, you know, the ability to respond or anticipate or whatever else. The emphasis now is, it sounds like it's more around communicating the need for people to actually want to change the future for themselves. Yeah, I think even a more, even a more fundamental point than that, I, I'd say early, uh, early in my career, we would produce like, these wonderful thick documents, uh, you know, outlining, I mean, it's just gorgeous, detailed, one reports of what the future might look like. Again, we had that problem with, what do I do with it? And I think the whole field in the last 10, 15, 20 years has been, you know, really wrestling with that question of how do we bring this to life, right? How do we make this useful? You know, how do we communicate it? I think we hope that 
clients will come to us with a, you know, a, a useful and interesting question that says, you know, a lot of times it's fear, which is a nice little, I mean, if you, we can just segue for a second, one of the things that I've, we've been really sensitive to is, I think, again, in, in the older days, we might have used kind of fear as a, you know, kind of a mechanism to gain attention. Yep. You don't do this. Here's what's coming. Yep. And I don't, I think that's seen much more. It's about here. We need hope, not fear. We've got plenty of fear. Yeah. Most of our clients are scared to death of the future. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's striking. I mean, the bravado, the confidence of, yeah. of days past is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jake uh, Dungan and um, Stuart Candy, of course, among others would it's necessary to go to the communication of futures through experiential means that we actually get people prepared to prepared to move and even you know so actually trying to devise ways that we that people experience the future otherwise there there isn't any commitment to act yeah i, I get i think that i would put that as you know advanced futures i mean that's my sense of i think we've got to build, use that permission futuring model of, you know, here's, here's the basics of what it looks like. And then maybe do a second project where we add a little bit more in, then, uh, then maybe we're starting to integrate it into processes. And then I think the experiential, I think, come, you know, with, with some comfort, kind of the basic concepts of what we're doing. Mm. Now I could see that I could see the counter argument for kind of starting that way from the beginning. My, my own view is to build up slowly before you really take them off the edge. But, the, you know, there is, a, I think, probably a way to do the do it, right? Just keep in- I mean, obviously there is, I mean, by its nature, this work is risky because, as you said, we're, mm-hmm. about, we're talking about change, either anticipating change or creating change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's risky process for people who might just be, you know, working pretty hard to stay afloat. But at the same time, as you said, people are you know, people now know that they're sinking. They know things aren't working, and so there really is a bigger risk in doing nothing rather than trying something. Yeah, and I think you know, as I think about the client landscape too, in terms of like you know who's interested in teachers' work, and, and by client, I mean that's putting that as I think audience are, is a, is a nice word. Or maybe uh, the the folks at Oxford now are calling about learners, which you call which you call. Uh, we're working with those learners and I actually yeah. think that's a nice mm. so the learners that are on the journey with us it's like you know they're you know we're seeing a lot more um, a lot more interest from the you know the international NGO community which has, has been wonderful yep um, a lot more from the public sector and you know so it's not it's they're in each one of them they're coming to us with I guess a, a much different <laughs> set of uh, concerns but again I, I, I would say that we will take them on the slow journey. Thanks, Andy. Question five, the one which is an open question, and uh, yeah, what do you want to talk to the listeners about? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been uh, playing with at Houston this, um, this semester, I guess indirectly for years, but to, more directly this semester, is, is really trying to, to make a concerted effort to tell the story about the, of the state of foresight. Some listeners will be like, well, it hasn't that, it's been tried. Uh, and there have been nice attempts to try to describe what's really going on. 
but I, I think we'd all agree that we still really don't have a handle on some of the fundamentals about what is who's doing this stuff. Who's uh, not a, who are the practitioners? Where are they practicing? Where are they practicing? Uh, who are the clients? What are they using? Uh, how are they faring? Again, we see we see little bits and pieces. I mean, and there's, there's some organizations who have done, you know, taken a crack at it. I know John Smart's uh, Global Foresight Org had a nice a nice bibliography, a nice page that was uh, that's a, a nice resource. You know, you and uh, Richard and the uh, the Swinburne folks did the uh, State of Play, and it's a wonderful overview of uh, you know who's doing what in terms of the interest that it, well actually in one other effort the, uh, the the APF a couple of years ago put together a market survey that was to basically survey uh, organizations I think it was mostly corporate and just to find out how they were thinking about the future it didn't get enough response to be useful so we've we've had these efforts of trying to uh, you know trying to I guess look at pieces of the elephant and you know who who better uh, to do this kind of work than you know this this seems like something an academic institution ought to take a crack at, and, and you know and practically speaking, like we're trying to you know help our students say, well, what what am I going to do with this? you know can I use this as a career and who's doing it, and you know most of my knowledge is is basically anecdotal, right? I know this one, who knows that one, who knows this one, but I have no real sort of systematic way to be able to say here's what's going on and, and you know part of that's the beauty of a, of, a, of a small field yeah if you will we almost all know each other i mean not quite but you know but that and and i think we've grown up to the point that that's you know that's not a way to really it's not going to help us expand the enterprise so we want to introduce future more people we're going to have to i think just you know take care of some basic business like who are we <laughs> and what what do we what what is the state of play so i think that's something you know that, you know i think it's a, it's a big beast and and it, it may be beyond the uh capabilities uh, i'm sure it's beyond the capabilities of any one group so it's basically you know how do we kind of connect the dots and and look at the folks who are tracking various pieces and try to you know, see if we can link that up in some sort of um, integrated, you know, just a sense of it really what's going on. We have no idea. I mean, this little podcast program's got a very modest reach, but we certainly reach outside any one space of foresight. So what, what's the question you would ask and what would you be asking people to do in order to actually progress your thinking in this space? Yeah, you know, it would be interesting to... You know, I guess it, we would have to sort of provide a little bit more structure, but like who's doing, you know, who is producing or either doing good work or is, is actually doing foresight work for us. Some of the, you know, some areas that we're just not active in, like we don't know what's going on. And um, I was, I spent this a uh, good part of the summer over in Thailand, uh, Thailand. And I was like, you know, I really have no idea. Are there any futurists in Thailand? Yeah. And, you know, I had no idea, right? And um, if it doesn't have a Millennium Project node, which has been one way we've had some local knowledge, and I found that we had actually had a few students in our certificate program from there. Really, we, we just have no, like, sort of on-the-ground intelligence. So maybe if we do get to the point where it's organized enough to have some sort of uh, kind of scanner network, 
and just kind of letting us know what's going on um, in the various you know locations around the world. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, on the interview with UNESCO and Real Mill are obviously they're interested. It's an interest of the Federation. It's an interest of the APF, as I said. Again, my comment back to you, just because I've been I've been hanging around in the field for a while now. It's always struck me interesting that as a field, we tend to ask questions about who we are and <laughs> what we do a lot. I mean, this is not a this is not a this is not a new question for us to ask. You could almost hypothesise that we have a degree of anxiety about identity and purpose that we keep that in fact we keep asking it. One of the answers to that is we keep asking the question, but nobody answers it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're really good. If you think about it, right. We even say one of the things, you know, one of the goals of future is to ask better questions Yeah. where, you know, the, the messy follow-up work of actually, you know, tracking and surveying and seeing who's doing the work. I mean, that's just sort of painful drudgery work, but I I suspect, and this one of the one of the reasons I'm interested in this is I suspect that there's a lot more work going on that we're aware of. Um, you know, like I said, I think my you know we've reached the limits of our personal networks that we can store in our heads, and it just is one little tiny example. Uh, you know, we just uh, in class this question, uh, question came up the other night. I said, well, let's just do let's look at link let's do a quick LinkedIn search and see how many people self-identify as futurists. 14,000. Right. Now, does, is there any, there's no scientific basis whatsoever. So, I mean, take it with the, the huge grain of salt, but 14,000. Hmm. I mean, you know, we have 500 members of the Association of Professional Futurists and uh, Federation is probably right around there. And so there's a, there's something going on between 14,000 and 500. Yeah. I think it would just be helpful to just have, just, not that we need to get it down to the, just have some sense of the lay of the land. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to wrap this one, Andy. So thanks very much for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community. It's been good to talk to you again. Always, always a pleasure, and let's do it sooner. <laughs> thanks, Andy. <laughs> All right. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.